those people walking around the low country carrying a large cross on their back. Perhaps you've seen them. I feel like I tend to see them on the Ravenel Bridge. I know sometimes we see them in Somerville and beyond as well. And they, they've always fascinated me and impressed me. Although I must admit, when I discovered that the cross had wheels on the bottom, I was a bit disappointed. You know, I'm embarrassed to say I was even tempted to think, if you're going to do this properly, you can at least carry it without the wheels. Well, a man you may have seen doing this is John Mangarelli of Somerville. And after spending one particular Lent praying and fasting, he felt the Lord was asking him to literally take up his cross and to carry it around Charleston. And when he was interviewed by the Post and Courier newspaper about why he did this, Mangarelli responded, In my time of prayer, the Lord spoke into my heart and said, A picture is worth a thousand words. This is his picture. He painted it 2,000 years ago. I'm not trying to be Jesus. This is his picture. I'm just a frame. Now, whether or not we think John is right or wrong to do this is really beside the point. He did it, and in doing so, he was ridiculed for it. And yet, even as he was mocked, he also led people to know Jesus. Now, for most of us, the closest thing we ever come to taking up a cross is when we talk about, oh, we well, you know, we have a cross to bear. You know that phrase we sometimes jokingly say, oh, well, you know, we all have our crosses to bear. But it's usually referring to some trivial annoyance like an ingrown toenail or a toothache or maybe a difficult mother-in-law. But as commentator Don Carson writes, in the first century, that sort of interpretation would have been impossible. It was as culturally unthinkable to make jokes about the crucifixion as it would have been to make jokes today about Auschwitz. Carson goes on, to take up your cross doesn't mean to move forward with courage, despite the fact that you've lost your job or your spouse. It means you are under sentence of death. You are taking up the horizontal cross member on your way to the place of crucifixion. You have abandoned all hope of life in this world. And then Jesus says, and only then are we ready to follow him. This week, we're continuing our sermon series, Living Lent. And we've entered into the season of Lent. That's the 40 days prior to Easter, a season where, like John Mangarelli, we take up disciplines of prayer and fasting or maybe silence and solitude or perhaps acts of denial in hopes of drawing near to God and hearing him speak. Last week, we saw Jesus do just this through his entering the wilderness and then resisting the devil's temptations. And we heard the call for us to do the, do the same. This week, though, we'll see how we're called to come and die to come and die, setting our minds on the things of God and not of man. So let's turn to our gospel reading today from Mark 8 and see what God might be saying to us through his word. You can either follow along on the screen or you're welcome to pull up your Bible app on your phone or pull out your Bible if you have one with you. And I want to give you some context first because it's pretty important. Just prior to this passage, literally the few verses beforehand, we read in Mark that Jesus is on the road with his disciples. And like any good teacher, he asks good questions. And he asks the good questions of his students in hope that they might learn. And the question he asks is, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And it's a big question. You see, opinion is divided in Israel at that time. And so the disciples respond, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and some say one of the prophets. And, you know, these aren't bad answers. Jesus is, in fact, a prophet. That's someone who speaks the word of God to the people of God and calls them to respond to him. 
But is that all there is to be said about Jesus? No, there's something unique and different about him. And so Jesus digs a little deeper and he makes it personal this time. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter, in an unusual moment of perception for him, replies, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. He and perhaps the other disciples too have figured out that this man, their rabbi, is more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. In fact, he is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God that the Old Testament prophets said would come to rescue the Jews from their oppressors. This is, in fact, a momentous step for Peter to take and one that probably even surprised himself as he said those words. And note that Jesus makes no attempt to deny what Peter says. He believes it to be accurate. He believes it to be true of himself that he is the Messiah. And so we come to our passage for today. And in verses 31 and 32, we read this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So first of all, we come to this a title that Jesus talks about. Well, who is he talking about when he says son of man? Well, he's actually referring to himself. We find this title used in the Old Testament, hundreds of years previously in the book of Daniel chapter 7. And here it refers to an exalted figure, someone who receives authority and glory and sovereign power, someone who's worshipped by all peoples and all nations and whose kingdom will never end and never be destroyed. So by calling himself the son of man, Jesus, is beginning to show the disciples that yes, he is the Messiah, but he's more than the political or the warrior Messiah that the Jews were hoping for, someone who would defeat the Romans and restore Israel. No, he's going to defeat a much greater enemy that they are facing. He's going to actually defeat sin and death, and he's going to do it by means that they're not expecting, by dying and rising again. Now, you might say, well, how did they not know this? Why didn't they put this together? But for those of us who sit on the other side of Easter, which we have done for 2,000 years, okay, we have a different vantage point to them. So it's, it's not surprising to us to hear Jesus say this. But it must have been pretty shocking for those disciples on the other side of Easter, not having experienced that yet. They're probably still under the misconception that Jesus is here to establish an earthly kingdom. He's going to be the next king of Israel. And he certainly seems to have the power to do it. The miracles they've seen happen. He can take it if he wants to. But now he's talking about dying. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing that someone who's about to conquer a country would talk about. And then he seems to get a little bit crazy. And he talks about coming back to life again. But you see, Jesus knows that in order to rescue all people, not just the Jews and not just the Jews from the Romans, in order to heal their broken relationships with the Father, there's got to be one sacrifice for the whole world. Only then can God's righteous anger be assuaged. Only then can people be forgiven. And only then can they experience life in all of its fullness. Therefore, on the cross, Jesus must take all of mankind's sin upon himself and in doing so pay the price that no one else can pay. And then he must rise again and defeat death forever. Now, of course, Peter doesn't want to hear this, right? He doesn't want to hear that. This isn't who he thinks Jesus is and it, or what he should be about. No, he, like so many of us at one stage or another in our lives, 
He wants Jesus to fit into the mold that he thinks of who he should be, whether that's just as a myth, whether that's as a nice historical teacher or a nice historical figure or a good teacher, whether that's as his buddy or his political ruler, perhaps. We all do this at one stage or another. And we mistake Jesus for someone that he's not. And we experience a rude awakening when we discover who he really is. And that's exactly what happens to Peter right now. In verse 33, we read this. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus corrects Peter very firmly. It's a stinging rebuke. Imagine if your best friend said to you, get behind me, Satan. It would probably be, whoa, hold on. But you see, Jesus knows that Satan, who's tried to tempt him in the wilderness, and he's defeated that, is now trying to tempt him in a very subtle way, which is through one of his followers, one of his friends even. And Jesus will have none of it. It may be hard for us to swallow, but you know, we too can make the same mistake as Peter, letting Satan use us for his purposes. None of us want to admit to that, do we? None of us. But we too can do the same thing. And how does Satan do it? Well, as Jesus says, he does it by getting us to set our minds on the things of the world around us and not on the things of God, on our earthly kingdoms rather than on God's kingdoms. So we start to focus on having the right house, maybe, or how to make the most of our leisure time on a beautiful sunny day like today, or how to have the nicest clothes or the best car or the greatest education or the best looking body or the most prestigious job or the right spouse or the perfect church or even the best performing children. And we lose our focus on what really matters very quickly which is following Jesus, being formed by him and fulfilling his mission here on earth. You know, we sell out and we settle for something less. That's what I've heard some call, we live our shadow mission. Something that looks really good, but is not God's best for us. So what are we to do? Well, the good news is that in our story, Jesus doesn't leave it there. No, he pulls his followers together and he explains to them what it looks like to set their minds on the things of God. Jesus wants the crowds and his own disciples to know that they're getting themselves into something quite serious when they choose to follow him. He wants to help them to see what it looks like to follow the real Messiah, the real Jesus, not the one that we want him to be for our own purposes. In verses 34 through 37, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? One commentator writing about this passage says, There is nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian. There is nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian. The disciples had probably seen a man take up his cross and they knew what it meant. When a man from one of the Jewish villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Jesus is telling his disciples that what they need to do and is someone who de- that a disciple is someone who denies themselves 
and who denies their own wants and desires. The disciple is someone who's prepared to give up their very life in order to follow him. And the disciple is someone who prioritizes God's kingdom over this earthly kingdom. Jesus doesn't play the bait and switch game. You know, come follow me, it's going to be wonderful, which it will be. He tells them up front, here's what to expect. Here's the cost. And it is costly. One that seems preposterous to much of the world. But as the missionary martyr Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And as the 16th century reformer Martin Luther once said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing which I think makes the Christian faith the most priceless of all. Well, it must have been hard for those disciples to hear those words of Jesus. And I think it must have really started to sink in right then, if it hadn't done already. I think that's probably the point where a lot of them start to leave him. Okay, They know this is going to be hard, and for some of them it seems too hard. And 2,000 years later, nothing has changed, friends. Nothing. For those of us who, like Peter, declare that, yes, Jesus is, is the Christ, and then choose to follow him, we are not choosing an easy path. But one more thing to note, please hear this. It isn't a path that Jesus isn't unwilling to take himself. He denies himself. He takes up his cross, and he goes where he doesn't want to go. What is it he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's crucified? Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He didn't want to go to the cross, but he was willing to deny himself and do just that. He was willing because his mind was set on the things of God and not of men. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. That's what he taught his disciples to pray, but he didn't just teach them to pray it. He actually lived that out day by day himself. And because of this, Jesus was able to conquer sin by taking on evil in the world and taking the sin of the world on his shoulders. And if we choose to recognize who he is and to follow him, we need never fear evil anymore. And we need never worry about death any longer or the eternal consequences of our sin. Jesus has conquered them all. Well, finally, Jesus gives a warning to those who are listening. Did you catch this in verse 38? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, Jesus has no time for people who have no time for him. People who are afraid or ashamed to profess their faith in him or to follow his teachings. The religious posers, the lukewarm, the hypocrites, the heretics, the part-timers, they are all going to get a very rude awakening when Jesus returns, even worse than the rebuke that Peter gets. You see, there is no shame in following Jesus. And so it's to be done with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. His words are the words of life. And as such, there's nothing to be ashamed of when we share them with others, even if it means ridicule by others. Friends, who or what are you setting your mind upon? Is it the things of God or is it the things of man? Knowing Jesus should change everything. 
It shows us that we're not just here by chance, or that we're just here to eat, drink, and be merry, or to simply make progress, or to improve our financial status, or to improve our standing before other people. No, there is so much more to life than that, and each of us has a part to play in God's story. The question is, are you willing to play your part fully in that story and to follow him, whatever the cost might be? Practically, depending on our age and stage in life, it's going to look different for each one of us. It's going to look different for the preschooler than the high schooler, or different for the single mom than for the grandmom, or for the, the business person rather than the retired person, or for those who live in Mount Pleasant, or those who live in Park Circle. But for all of us, it will be characterized primarily by dying to self, giving our lives for others for the sake of the kingdom of God. William Barclay once wrote, the Christian must realize that he is given life not to keep it for himself, but to spend it for others, not to husband its flame, but to burn himself out for Christ and for man. This plays itself out in a whole host of different ways. Maybe it means leaving your home. Maybe it means leaving your hometown, even leaving your country to share the gospel with others. Or perhaps it means giving up of your possessions or your finances for a life of more downward mobility. Or maybe choosing a less glamorous or prosperous career for the sake of God's kingdom. It may look like giving up your leisure time to serve others or honoring your marriage covenant when others would say you should give in or give up. And it will definitely look like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, choosing to forgive the unforgivable, taking the narrow path over the wide road, keeping God's commandments and making disciples. These are all the ways of the cross and therefore the way of a disciple, setting our minds on the things of God and not of man. This week, friends, may we choose to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And in doing so, may others see within the frame of our lives a picture of who the real Jesus is and come to experience his grace and his love for themselves, knowing that even if others ridicule us for doing this, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.